0: The purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in that grace. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. What do you think? You all right? Are we are gonna be all right? We right. gonna be all right. We've got Jesus in our heart, the Holy Spirit's here. Everybody's gonna be A-okay. Um, as we've already said in this service, it, we live in a crazy uh, world, it is sobering, and uh, uh, Peter is gonna talk to us uh, about a couple of things, the first of all being hope. As a matter of fact, we're gonna, we're gonna lean into two four-letter words today, how's that? Um, hope and holy, hope and holy. So you can just tune out now because if your friend asks you what do they talk about in church, you go hope and holy. All right, good. Um, First Peter chapter one. The author's name uh, it was not originally Peter. Jesus gave him that name. The name his father gave him on the eighth day after he was born was Simon, and uh, then Jesus says, I'm not going to call you Simon. I'm going to call you Cephas which means stone, and then they translated the Bible into Greek or rewrote wrote it in Greek or whatever happened there. And that, Caphas becomes Petros, which means stone. And, uh, and then we call him Peter. Some of you call him St. Peter. I call him Pete when I'm talking to him. Um, and his story's uh, powerful and it's fascinating. We really, a lot of us really resonate uh, with this man because of his personality. Unfortunately, we get a lot of uh, stories about Simon Peter. One of the stories about Simon Peter, Dr. Luke, reveals to us in, I think it's about chapter five, but I could be wrong there, of his gospel, Luke, where um, Jesus is teaching on the seashore. And when I say seashore, I mean lakeside. We always say that. It's, it's a lake. But uh, you, go to, you go to Israel and you go, that's the Sea of Galilee? It's smaller than Lake Tahoe. Why don't they just call it a lake? Well, they do over there, but the Bible called it a sea years ago, and that's another story. Anyway, Lake Galilee... It's the, it's the later service. I do distract myself, this one. There's a butterfly. All right, back. Here we go. <laughs> Jesus is teaching at the water's edge, and the crowd gets, as, as it was prone to do, Jesus had become somewhat of a rabbi rock star, and they, say, they, they would always say, he teaches as one with authority, and they hadn't heard this kind of teaching. Plus, he's healing people everywhere he goes, and so the crowd gets a, does tend to get a little pushy. Uh, in those settings, and so Jesus is backing into the water, and he just steps into Simon Peter's boat. Now, Peter, James, and John, they're fishing partners. <clears throat> they live in Bethsaida, which is nearby. <clears throat> They've been fishing all night, because you fish all night. You fish at night over there. They still do, because the fish come to the surface uh, during the nighttime, where, and it's cooler, and they're looking for the moon. I don't know why, uh, but at daytime, they, they they go deep, and those nets aren't gonna reach there, so... Anyway, fished all night, caught no fishes, and uh, they're cleaning their nets, and they're listening to Jesus, too, because they're very, they're compelled by this carpenter turned rabbi who seems to really have uh, this message that they've really never heard before. And so Jesus is teaching. He says, hey, Peter, would you mind if I got in your boat and sat down to teach, and we could push out, push out a little bit, because then it'll put a little distance between me and the crowd. Peter says, that's fine. And they push out. Jesus is teaching. After he's done teaching, he looks over at Peter, who's in the boat with him, uh, and he says, "Hey, well, let us go back out and catch you guys some more fish." And Peter says, "Well, if you hadn't heard, we didn't catch any fish last night. And now it's the middle of the day. We're not going to catch any fish today." And Peter says, "You know, but Lord, you know, you did a great job teaching. I'd love to show you what I do now. You know, we'll throw the nets. We'll show, I'll just teach you some technique or something. It'll be fun. It'll be fun." And uh, But then that's when it happened, because if you've heard the story before, they go out, and the fish go, hey, it's Jesus. And they come up from the bottom of the lake, because the creator of them is in a boat right there. And they're like, hi, Jesus. And they're like, oh, we're caught. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what fish say when that kind of thing happens, but nevertheless, Peter is just, what? And he falls down at Jesus' feet, probably right there in the boat, probably on a boat full of flopping fish. And he just says, you got to get out. you got to get away from me. You're obviously a holy, holy man. I don't know how you did what you just did. Um, I mean, it's amazing when Jesus shows up at your workplace, your area of expertise, and then performs a miracle. And that's what just happened. And he said, Peter didn't say, I want to be near you. He said, you need to be not near me because I'm I'm just Simon, you know. And Jesus says, hey, don't worry about it. He says, but from now on, you and I are gonna fish for people. And that's what they did. Peter, James, John, Luke tells us that they they brought their boats to shore, they left the boats, the nets, the fish, everything, and they became uh, Jesus's disciple. Now, that really happened, by the way. That's not a a story we tell kids in Sunday school that later on when we get older, we go, yeah, well, it didn't really happen, but no, it really did happen in history. And uh, Simon Peter witnessed a lot of unexplainable things that happened in, uh, in his lifetime, in Jesus' lifetime. Uh, and so it's not that they ever got used to these unexplainable things, but they definitely saw a lot of them. And then Jesus is crucified on that Friday. He comes back to life on Sunday. And then uh, later he ascends to the Father. They see him go into the heavenlies. I mean, what a life. This is so amazing what these guys see uh, and then at Pentecost, uh, overnight, the Holy Spirit turns these men and women into just powerhouses of people that boldly share the gospel. And uh, so here we are, then, years later, with the apostle writing words like these. These are the words we studied last weekend You are God's elect, strangers scattered throughout the world, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Even angels long to look into these things. Who writes like that? This guy is a fisherman who hung out with Jesus, and he turns into a theologian poet, and the whole book reads like this. As we study First Peter, I would encourage you to listen to the text on your, your Bible on your phone and put it on as you're driving and just listen to the poetry as it comes out and do it over and over again. Listen to chapter one, listen to chapter two and follow us along in the text as we preach for eight weeks but also just listen to it read. Listen to the whole book. If you have to drive across uh, the bay, it, you, you, you can listen to it twice. It will blow your mind how, you just say, how does this guy write like this? And what's he saying? Well, we know the Holy Spirit is helping him after Jesus hung out with him. But he leaves us this book for our well-being. All right, so let's do today's verses. Verse 13. Therefore, got your Bibles open? First Peter 1. 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Wow, alert minds, completely sober. One of the other English translations says, prepare your minds for action. This is not a time, uh, Peter says, for our minds to be wandering, for them to be distracted. For, for, wake up, Peter says. Wake up. Pay attention. Listen up. Push away distraction. Focus, people. Be fully present, he would say. Right here, right now. Church, we didn't gather today so that our minds could continue to wander as we digest a free donut. This, this is more than that. We didn't gather today so that we could somehow fulfill some church-going obligation that's in, the, that's in our psyche. Uh, and we didn't gather today for us to be distracted, checking our phones every few minutes. Uh, uh, we gathered to meet with other Christians, to meet with God, and to expect that the Holy Spirit has something to tell us that will fashion the next seven days of our existence on this planet, this is a very important intentional meeting uh, where, where, where we, we say, wow, okay, our children are, are in good hands and they're learning about Jesus and, 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 and the, our, our teenagers are experiencing relationships that are really good with older Christians and I'm here and I can just be selfish even and I can just soak and learn, but I'm gonna do more than just listen to Steve talk about his Bible study all week. I'm gonna ask myself, what." Is the Spirit of God saying to me uniquely regarding what I'm going through right now? And what word can I get from God? What living word can I get from this word that will help me because I need help? Churches are full today of people crying out to God for help, whether you're in Las Vegas or not. We all know it's crazy out there. But we don't just huddle together to tell each other it's crazy out there. We huddle together in order to equip ourselves to run right out there and solve some of the problems that we love to complain about. Are you with me on this? And one of the ways we're going to solve the problem is by getting something into our own heart. The first four-letter word. What do you think it was? Hope. Here we go. Therefore, with minds that are alert because the pastor just told you, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed His coming say it with me set your, hope. set your hope you did good there let's do it again set your, set your hope You set your hope now I'm a fly fisherman well I try I've caught some fish on dry flies I like fly fishing it's better for me than the other kind of fishing because I find the other kind of fishing kind of boring you're sitting there with your friend. He's talking about his problem with his wife. you got a worm out there. You could be reading a book. It, you know, it's just you got to wait. Fly fishing, you got to move. You come home from a day of fly fishing, you're tired. You're, and you've walked through a river, and you were just like, you thought you were in a movie, and you're, you know, and you're, look at that. And it's just so great And every now and then. And if you're doing it right, what happens is... Fly fishing, what, the reason I like it is because it's a little bit more of a sport and the fish has a little bit more of a chance. Um, first of all, you're not catching fish that you're gonna eat. That was my first disappointment when I became a fly fisherman because I'm, I had grown up catching pan-sized trout in Colorado and you just bring home your limit and fry them up. And then I was out with these fly fishermen and they didn't take one fish home with them and they caught a lot of fish. And I'm like, wait, what is this? They go, well, you, you know it's catch and release. And I'm like, what does that mean? They go, what part of it don't you understand? I go, you mean you released the fish? I, I, I thought they released more fish so I could catch them. <laughs> no. And they said, also, you see this hook? It's a barbless hook. Why is it a barbless hook? So the fish has a chance to not get its lips ripped off while you're taking the barb, while you're taking the hook out of the fish's mouth. Why? Because you're gonna, you're gonna throw the fish back. And you don't, it, even you don't throw it back. You It's like you cradle the fish. They, I learned this whole thing little fish, you know, and you get in touch with your inner Native American, you know, I just pray, you know, love you, thank you, what was that, anyway, that was really weird, that Native American thing, okay, forget I said that, where was I, oh, it's a barbless hook, why is it a barbless hook, so you won't hurt the fish, why don't you want to hurt the fish, because it needs to fish, it needs to swim away, so that some other guy can pay a lot of money to catch the fish and let it go. All right. So here's the deal. What they teach you is, Steve, you throw, your, you throw it out there, your, your mosquito, your fly, whatever you've got, and you throw it out there, and it skips under the water. And you go, okay, now I can read a book. No, 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 no. You've got to make it look like it's, a, it's alive. And then that fish, bam, it hits it. And that's when you, are there any other fish, fishermen in the room? Okay, fisherwoman. Thank you. If I say set, what do you think? Set the? Set the hook. So I read this. It says, set your hope. And I heard, set your hook. That's a fisherman writing this. Maybe I'm not that far off. Set your hook. And what happens is when you first learn how to fly fish, you lose most of the fish that hit your line. Actually, you don't even know they hit your line. Because you're not sensitive enough yet to feel that little like that and but then the, the better fisherman you are you you feel like you set the hook and now you got him on you're bringing him in it's so fun and then you let him go for some weird reason I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> so I read this and what I hear is I'm out there in life and when I first start following the Lord I miss all kinds of opportunities to, to share Christ, to see what God is doing, to praise God, to understand he's actually active in this world. I'm, I'm just out there fishing. I'm enjoying everything, but I'm not catching any fish until someone comes along and disciples me and teaches me, did you see what has happened right there to your line? Well, yeah, that little thing that was probably nothing. No, that was a fish. So next time that, there it is again. He's, and they'll say, set your hook, set your hook, see set, 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 set. And you're like, would you settle down? They go, well, did you come out here to fish or to catch fish? I want to catch fish. You learn how to set the hook. All right. I talked about that way too long, but I'm excited about fly fishing. All right. I need to get back into the word, I guess. Because Peter says, set your hook completely. Oh, no, set your hope completely. And what do I set my hope completely on? On the grace that Jesus is bringing you today. on the great setting, I'm not there, you know. Oh, I'm such a lousy Christian. I'm such a terrible person. I sinned, whatever. You know. and, then, and then Jesus goes, ah, let's set my hope into the grace that he brings. And Peter even says, and into the grace that he's going to bring you at the second coming. All right, so now let's look at another way to look at this word, uh, set your hope. Because one of the old English translations of... Uh, of, of this very same verse isn't, doesn't hearken unto fishing at all, it's, it, it's more like running. The old translation, it comes like this. Uh, gird, your, gird up the loins. It, who talks like this? This is old English. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end. I don't understand most of what that said. So you have to look it up. And what it means, girding up your loins, that's, you live in a day and age when you wear these flowing robes, but now you gotta get moving And so you take this part and you tuck it up into your belt. And so now you're you're, you're going. It's what Moses would say to him. Like, hey, people, get moving. We're moving. This is our wilderness. I know you love it out here with the scorpions and the snakes and no water and all that. We're headed out there. Everybody get moving. Gird up your loins and let's go. Now what Peter's going to say is, gird up the loins of your mind. Your mind's been like, oh, football, oh, video game, oh, sleep, oh, whatever. And Peter's going to say, hey. Turn up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Wake up and hope to the very end. I love this four-letter word, hope. Jesus says to Peter, let's go out and catch some fish, and Peter says, this is my area of expertise, and Jesus says, wait, you see how much better I am at it than you, which brings up an interesting point. When it comes to what we anchor our hope in, we need to be careful that on the things we're good at, we don't hope too much in our own skill set, ability, resources, because even though you've done this thing a thousand times, on the thousand and one time, you'll do it wrong. Why? Because you're prideful now. And pride puts blinders on. You know, the Bible says pride comes before what? Fall. And it's fall now. It's October. So you're, you're set. You're ready to go here. So pay attention. It's not in our weaknesses that we struggle to trust Jesus. It's in our strength. It's at the stuff that everybody else says, you're really good at that. That's when we need to say, wait, 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 wait. My hope, that old song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, which means my hope is not built on my ability or my resources. So we anchor our dreams in Jesus. We anchor our dreams, and he's gonna gonna refer to it as building your house upon solid what? Solid rock, that you anchor into solid rock. And we in the Bay Area, of all people, we should lean into that one. That Jesus wants our homes to be built on a solid foundation. All right, so Brent and I spent a year looking for the right house and refusing to pay too much for a nice house, but definitely praying through it. And and, and it took us a year. We found our house. We bought a house. I hope it's the right house because we're in escrow. I know it's the right house. We feel really good about it. We'll move in by Thanksgiving. We're going to have all of you over. But where I'm going with this is when you, sign, when you buy a house, if you've never done this, you sign so many documents. It's unbelievable. They told us that when the computers took over the world, the paper would become, not abs- somehow real estate hasn't figured that out yet. You sign reams of documents that no one, after the deal is done, is ever going to read Again. And some of these documents are crazy. And, you know, I asked my realtor, Do, am I really supposed to read this 45-page hazmat doc, document? And he goes, oh, yeah, as your realtor, I have to tell you, you, you should read everything. Don't ever initial or sign something you don't read. I'm like, I am not reading that. He goes, I know, you're not. I go, I trust you. He goes, no, I'm, I'm, com- I'm not supposed, you're not supposed to trust me. I, 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 can't, I can't even, f- the font. But there was this one doc that got my attention, so I read it cover to cover, the 45-page natural hazard disclosure. This is one page we adapted a little bit for the screen, but this is straight off it. This is my house, there, there's our house. And it's black now, we're gonna paint it a, a nice color, but <laughs> this, is, this is where we live now. And there's another one called the hazmat disclosure that tells us all the toxic and radioactive things that are near my house, or the power lines that are gonna give me cancer, whatever. That's not that report. That's another real fun report. This is the the natural hazard disclosure report. Come to find out, Bryn and I just bought a jillion dollar cracker box on a piece of dirt that's in a special flood hazard area. Special. It's a special flood that's going to hit in our area. It's special. And it's not going to hit our house. It's just going to make it more beachfront property, which will probably but maybe not beachfront property because we are also in the dam failure inundation area. Now pardon my French, but it says dam failure. So at some point, this real estate's all gonna be a dam failure. And when the dam up here breaks, this little stream is going to become this river and beachfront property will be somewhere up uh, downtown, I think at that point, after the dam failure. But wait, there's more. The green dots don't represent beautiful trees. The green dots is the state seismic hazard zone. hashtag liquefication. <laughs> so I looked up liquefaction on the doc, and here's how it defined it. Liquefaction is the rapid transformation of saturated, loose, fine-grained sediment to a liquid state typically caused by a strong ground shaking during an earthquake. But we don't have those. So why would I worry? <laughs> Liquification increases the hazard of fires because of explosions induced when underground gas lines break. And because the breakage of water mains substantially reduces fire suppression capability. <laughs> so the firefighters, who really are just down the street, are going to be putting out the fire with buckets of water that they're going to get after the dam failure. Liquefaction can result in substantial loss of life, injury, and damage to property. Friends, Jesus told a parable about Brenda and me. (laughs) Matthew chapter 7. I adapted it a bit. It goes something like this. The wise couple built their hopes and their house not on liquefied magma. (laughs) They bought an affordable home in Waco, Texas. The foolish couple, however, didn't want to live in Waco, Texas, so they chose a beautiful, overpriced San Francisco East Bay wine country home, and the earthquake hits. The next day, the wise couple in Waco are sipping their sweet tea, sitting on their wraparound porch uh, and looking out into their pasture at their goats, and the foolish couple are limping toward the FEMA application trailer (laughs) with a gallon of water. In their hand yeah so I'm in the Bible so Jesus in this parable he's not he's not talking about actual houses as much as he's talking about what we build our lives upon shifting sand or a rock where do we anchor our hope the wise builder anchors their hope in the right place and we followers of Christ say that the very best place to place and keep your hope is in Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, the resurrected, death-defeating, power-giving Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves and loves us better than we love ourselves. If anyone can love you better than you love yourself, it's gonna be Jesus. So let me ask you a question. As I've been talking now, and you've been thinking about our Bay Area, And I I was talking about earthquakes, but if we take it out of that zone and make that a metaphor, can you think of different, absolutely shifting sand that we are tempted on a regular basis to set our anchor hooks into? I can. And I don't even have to give you one of those preacher lists. You're thinking already. Where the world says, set your hope here, and we go, wait, wait, wait. Other people have done that, and here's what happened. Well, set your hope, well, no, not all my hopes. I've gotta live in a house, but you know, I need to have investments, but however, I, set your hope completely. Where do we set our hope completely? Turn to your neighbor right now and tell them where to set their hope completely. Now as we ponder this little word hope, we find out it's a really big word. My theory is that we use the word hope in the wrong way. I think in modern day English, we say hope as if it's I wish. Like, um, are you gonna get that job? Well, I hope, I hope, you know. It's like, no, Peter wouldn't even have that look on his face when he said the word hope. Biblical hope is, is, is the, uh, the most sure thing that's in the Bible. Biblical hope is the intentional, well-chosen decision to let Jesus be your sustaining anchor and you're expecting life to become an earthquake at some point. Jesus is what we build everything in our life upon. That's what it is to be his follower. The New Testament book of Hebrews says it like this. We have this hope, and he's talking about Jesus. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. So Peter's book reminds us, don't wait for the earthquake to set that. And and good on you, those of you that are watching online, and those of you that are here, that's that's part of why you came. That's part of what you're doing. You're reminding yourself of hope, and you're learning new things about the hope. And you're reminding yourself, hey, I'm not an idiot for following after Christ. I, I'm i doing this intentionally, and, and and we'll find out at the end of all things whether I was right or wrong. Now, Peter in verse 14 is going to Say, okay, I want you to put your anchor hope here. Then he's gonna to talk to us about the old anchors that have to be pulled up so that we can reset the new anchors. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, when we first see evil desires, we sometimes, you know, we might go to um, sexual issues, um, um, greed, you know, some of the more, like, or we might go to substance abuse. Yes, for sure, Um But there's lots of things that the Bible calls out as evil desires that we need to think about in terms of what we are not going to conform. Look at the word conform. Uh, You used to conform, the Bible says, to the ways of this world. And now you've said, I'm going to conform to something different. Well, what am I going to conform to? Is it all these church people? No, they're just as imperfect as I am. Uh, I'm gonna conform to what the scriptures say, and then as the church people talk about the scriptures, and that's why you need to be in a community group that actually opens their Bibles, uh, because all of our opinions are really great for about 15 minutes, and after that, I'm ready to roll, because I have opinions too, and if you're not gonna let me talk, I'm I'm out the door, and I'm probably not gonna listen to yours anyway. So the, the deal is this, Christians get together to study this, and to talk about this, and then how this Is applying to that out there, so we don't conform to evil desires. We pull up those anchors and we reset new anchors. We set our hope. All right, I'm going to move to the next four-letter word, but let's say this together so for sure we've got it. No. Now do it again. All right, very good. Now let's do verse 15. And just so you know, if you're worried about the time, I'm only going to finish this chapter. I'm not going to go into chapter two. So uh, it uh, it takes about 20 minutes per verse. You'll be fine. (laughs) Is he kidding? (laughs) As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had me live in ignorance. But here comes a four-letter word. See if you can identify it. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. What is it? Dang, you guys are sharp. Now, this word holy, it's a religious word. It's a church word. If the world ever uses the word holy, they're referring to us in a negative context. Oh, she thinks she's holier than thou. She thinks she's so holy. Uh, this is not a word that has a positive uh, spin. Um, I think uh, you know about my childhood. I, I grew up in and around church my whole life. Uh, we were I was in Pentecostal churches, uh, but there were, we were lumped together with all the other churches by historians that think about these kind of things, and they're called holiness churches. And this was a big movement in the late 1800s, 1900s. It was called the Holiness Movement. It's still around. It's just a little bit waning now. But the Holiness Movement was exactly what it sounds like it was people who were trying to be holy, and it's kind of where we got holy rollers and holier than thou. Because in their effort to try to be holy, some of us went overboard, and then we kind of started thinking we were holier than everybody else. And it was, it was because of our behaviors. And uh, uh, it, it was crazy. Uh, basically, we defined ourselves by all the things we didn't do. Uh, and our uh, we, th- what, what our preaching was like was, hey, the more fun things you wanna do, don't do those things, because somehow, because they're fun, they're not holy. Now, that's not how it was preached, but that's how teenagers somehow interpreted it. So our preachers all encouraged us to get out there and not do stuff. The saving grace was my dad, because he didn't act like that, and uh, so, you know, my parents were awesome, but they were in the middle of this, and my parents actually did get judged by a lot of other people for things like, like my dad stopped preaching out of the King James Bible and started preaching out of a Bible that you could actually understand. How many of you do not know what I just said, the King James Bible? You don't know what I just said. I'm not going to laugh at you. I just want to know if you don't know. You don't know what the King James, ah, all right. The, <laughs> don't ever trust me when I do that. The King James Bible is a version of the Bible that was translated, and the king's name was James, and it was translated in England in 1611, and it reads like 1611 English. So it's kind of like Shakespeare got saved and is trying to explain God to you. (laughs) So our preachers would preach texts like Deuteronomy 14, and I quote, ye are the children nah. Of the Lord thy God, thou art an holy people uh, unto the Lord thy God. Uh, the Lord has chosen thee uh, to be a peculiar people uh, unto Himself. Uh. Now, the "ah" uh, was added by the later preacher. Shakespeare wouldn't have done that, but that's how I heard it. And uh, I'm pretty sure peculiar meant something different in 1611, but our preachers didn't ever catch that. As a matter of fact, they would really camp on this word, that we were supposed to be peculiar. The more peculiar you are, the better out there, because that means you're holy. So let me give you just a few illustrations. Sunday morning rolls around. Other boys, nine years old, they're thinking, I get to sleep in, I don't have to go to school. Uh, I'm going to get up and put on my favorite jeans. I'm going to play all day. It's going to be awesome. No, Uh, I got up and put on one of my, I probably, I think I had one of my three suits, okay, and went to church in my suit. I dressed up just like my dad, and uh, my sisters wore dresses, of course. My mom had a beautiful dress. She had the hair going, and uh, we went to church. Now, it's not that we didn't enjoy it. It's just this, I, I grew up going to church a lot. And all of us little um, eight-year-old bankers walking around in our suits. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's peculiar. And then Sunday, then lunch, noon rolls around, but not for us, lunch isn't gonna be till about one. And so you're starving, and back then they didn't have snacks at church. You could break into the communion thing and rip off some of the grape juice, but that, you're not supposed to do that. So uh, you're hungry, but lunch was always really a nice meal. Sunday dinner, it was called, and uh, it, was, it was usually nice. You sometimes had to keep your clothes on, like your, until after lunch, which was really a shame. But now, no alcohol is touching my parents' lips at lunch, not a, even a small glass of wine, because that, that's not holy. Now, fortunately, high-fat content, high-sugar content foods are fine. So we had lots and lots of that. That's apparently holy. Uh, and then we had potlucks once a month where people brought more desserts than anything else. It was casseroles and desserts, and those, that's really good diet food right there. And then even our desserts, it wasn't just that the cake was already had all these eggs and sugar and whole milk and everything. Then they would take the cake and then they had these injection things and they would inject jello into the cake. jell into the cake. How many of you have ever had cake with jello in it? Yeah, it's awesome, it is awesome. When you're a kid, uh, but uh, it wasn't—it was, you know. So it's like, hey, this is really great, but not the the picnic. Not one beer, no one. Absolutely, they drank them in the car, and then they came. But anyway, um, no, yeah, they did. No. So there we are on Sunday. Then we have Sunday dinner. Then my friends are playing outside, but we're supposed to rest because it's Sabbath. But it doesn't matter, it doesn't last very long because guess what, Sunday night rolls around, all the neighbors now, they're coming in, it sounds like they had a fun barbecue in their backyard, their dad is slurring his words a little bit, but they seem like they had a good time. They come in the house, they make TV dinners, who remembers TV dinners? Yeah, nourishment in a foil pan. They made TV dinners and pop popcorn and watched Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. But I never saw Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, not once in my childhood, Why? Guess. We dressed back up and went back to church again. And Wednesday night, we did it again. And some of the lessons we learned were caught rather than taught, like that time when uh, Melba Jean, totally hot 28-year-old, I don't know how she was, I was nine, okay, she was 28. (laughs) But Melba Jean started coming to our church. And she was a sinner. Okay, she was a sinner. For sure. But the women were nice to her. The men all offered to pray with her. It was great. Uh, No, I'm teasing. This was a good group of people. Especially Sister Gustafson, who took Melba Jean into the bathroom by the elbow. And they were in there quite a while. And when Melba Jean came out, she was wiping her eyes. And then she went home. And then uh, uh, the next time she came, she had like a, a nice, modest dress on. I was like, rats. Uh, no, I wasn't. I was like, praise the Lord, she's gonna be holy now. But uh, Melba Jean stopped coming after a while. I, apparently, she didn't wanna be holy. Um, so, anyway, but there were lots of roles. We didn't dance. And I'm not talking about teenage dances that, that like nowadays, like I've, I've chaperoned a couple proms and I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea either. But I'm talking about third graders square dancing. No, didn't do that uh, because dancing isn't holy. And some of us, all, most of us didn't go to movies or didn't admit we went to movies. Some of us didn't go bowling, play billiards or play with playing cards. Because duh, when people are doing that, they're drinking beer and gambling. I mean, it's a slippery slope. (laughs) One minute you're trying to get the eight ball in the corner pocket, the next minute, you're under the table naked and drunk with Melba. (laughs) I'm just saying, I tried to warn you. Don't go into that pool hall. So the list of things we didn't do were endless and the, the way we knew someone had backslid is that we saw them out there doing those things. So that's what Wednesday night was for. It was called prayer meeting where we gossiped and prayed for people I'm, a lot of this is cheesy, okay? This is my group, so you can tease about your group. Uh, actually, there were some such cool people in this group and even to this day, the most wonderful people. But it was interesting, the most wonderful people, as I look back, were also the people who learned how to be and live graciously in the middle of a legalistic environment, including my parents. And uh, so, come to find out, I turned out not hating church or thinking it was um, too weird. And I turned out really super normal, right? 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 Right. <laughs> it wasn't until my adult years that I figured out that holiness isn't anything to do with that and that God never defines himself by what he doesn't do. God's holy. His definition of it is, is who he is. He is holy. He doesn't say, I'm holy, therefore I don't play pool. <laughs> and he doesn't, he doesn't say that to us either. God never defines his holiness by what he doesn't do. He defines it by what he does do. His holiness comes out of who he is, and it's all this really cool, creative, wonderful stuff. Hmm. I don't even think if God ever does in the Bible say what he doesn't do, what does he say? He says, I don't ever change, I won't ever leave you, I won't hold your sins against you. These are the things that God doesn't do because of his holiness. So Jesus comes, the son of God, to reset what was then the most legalistic religion on the planet, Judaism. And he comes into there to say, guys, these are what the 10 Commandments were about. This is what the Sabbath was about. This is what creation was about. This is what Leviticus was about. You kinda missed the point. And so even Jesus was defined by people who hated him. Not by what he didn't do, but by what he did do. If you want someone to, how do I say this? To fairly dislike you because you're a Christian. Make it about all the great things you do and they don't like that and they don't understand it. Make it about moral things that you do that aren't from a list that you want them to keep. Make it about good things and they say, oh, they just drive me crazy. They think they're holier than me. And then someone else goes, no, they don't. You have a problem with them. They're really a great person. Maybe you're struggling with you. And that's what, we, that's what Jesus did he got people to struggle with who they were and then those people either changed or they killed him. See, that's, this is crazy. You know, Jesus comes and he works all these miracles but there's one day a week when he works most of the miracles. He's got seven days a week so if he wasn't making a point, you could look at it and you could say, well, that miracle was on a Tuesday, that miracle was on, what's the day of the week when Jesus does a third of all the miracles? You know this. Sabbath. And why is he doing that? Because he came into a legalistic religion that prided themselves in all the things they didn't do on Sabbath. And he said, this is ridiculous. If your goat falls into a ditch on Sabbath, you break Sabbath law because your goat will be dead by sundown on Saturday. He's laying upside down in a ditch. And his face is underwater. You just say, God's going to have to forgive me. And you pull the goat out of the ditch. All I did was pull a human being out of a ditch and heal them and change their life forever. And you're mad at me for that. The Sabbath wasn't made like this. Man wasn't created for the Sabbath, to worship the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. That's one thing that's so unfortunate about how the Sabbath isn't honored in America anymore. Because you're just as busy on the Sabbath as you are every other day of the week. And that makes your life suck. You're way too busy. You should pick one day of the weekend, one 24 hour period of the weekend where you don't go to your kids' soccer game, where you don't go to this thing obligate, where you don't work on the yacht, where you, unless you love doing that, and it's super relaxing to you, where you don't do chores. And why don't you do it? It's because that makes you holy to not do things. No, it's so you can do holy things like be with your family, enjoy God, take a nap, have some really good nourishing food and eat it slowly while you watch football <laughs> and pray for concussions to not happen. All right, I'm so distracted. I gotta get back into it. Apostle Peter, he's here today. I'm convinced he would tell us this. Don't worry about the religious rules and regulations. They will take care of themselves in your life as you become more holy. As you hang out with Jesus, as you let, like, and what does it mean hang out with Jesus? It means you talk to him instead of checking your phone too much. You go, every time I wanna check my phone, first, I'm not gonna check my phone. Eh, really hard. And you go, hey Jesus, just checking in with you. Are we, going? okay, whoo? you know, wow. Corn prices are coming down next fall. Anyway. You're like, what app does he have? <laughs> Human holiness is nothing more than the imitation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, they're going, where's the slide he wanted us to put up? You guys, I love you up there. There's no way you would have known. See, they're like, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, they did it. Could we please? That's why Jesus came, so that we would know who to imitate. He gave us a human being to imitate, and then he dies on the cross, he pays the price for our holiness, then he resurrects from the dead to prove that what he did really works and also that we are going to be in heaven with him, and then he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to give us the the ability to live this thing out. Sometimes we make Christianity such a hard project. It's no wonder other people don't wanna be Christians. We look so tired. All right, let's wrap it up. I was at the farmer's market in Pleasanton yesterday, and uh, if, I like farmer's, I don't know why. I, yeah, I know why, because I like buying overpriced, locally grown things. <laughs> and I'm totally willing to. Why? Because it's local, and it's organic, and it tastes 10 times better than some of the other stuff you can buy. And I'm worth that to myself. And I just love those strawberries that taste like they were picked when strawberries should have been picked. And they, they didn't spray all that junk on them, all those pesticides. And it says it right there. This is organic. And they'll even tell you, in our farm, this is what we do and don't do. I'm like, sign me up. How much is it? It's only $41 for this peach. I'll take two. I'll take two. Why? Because it's just so much better. Eat it slower, but it's better. It's absolutely better. I think churches should be more like farmer's markets. I think we should be local and organic. The best church is a local church, led by a pastor who's lived there a long time, led by leadership who's lived in that zip code for a long time. Not that it's not okay for people to come from other places and start stuff, but we already speak the language of Livermore. We live here. I think that the best ministry is local ministry. Even our partners worldwide. We only partner with people who are succeeding on the ground where we are. Where we have failed as a church is when we tried to start something in another country. That has never worked well for us. We'll never do it again. It's when we find partners that are already killing it and we just say, can we join with you guys? And can we help you? And guess what they need? More money. Can our kids come sometimes and and create havoc in your organization for about a week? All right, if you send us a lot more money. Best ministry though local. Best ministry organic. What does that mean? The people we are the fruit that's being consumed at the farmers market, and we have not covered ourselves or injected ourselves with pesticides or antibiotics or any other thing that's bad for someone else's consumption. As a matter of fact, we've let Jesus wash that out of our system, and no longer do we consume things from in our eyes or through our lips that that, that that would would not produce good fruit. And what we do is we produce good fruit and we let the world come and consume us. That's why Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, consume me. He's saying, partake of me and we're the body of Christ. So the way we're gonna change our zip code is by getting ourselves very healthy and then by allowing people into our homes, into our lives, into our conversations, and into our church. And then we're gonna just make sure we don't say hateful things about groups that we don't understand. We're gonna make sure we, we just quote Christ a lot. We imitate Christ a lot. And we're gonna make sure we love and serve in a sacrificial, generous way. And as we do that, we're going to become tasty to the world. And it'll take people a while, because you know it's like when I first started eating kale. I looked at that, I said, I am not putting that in my mouth. And then after you have it, and you're like, you know, that's pretty good. And that's what a lot of people who, come to, who will come to our church, at first they're going to go, I am not going to, absolutely not. And then they come, maybe as a favor or whatever, and then they go, well, oh, people are pretty nice, but I'm sure there's a lot of hypocrites there. And Then they keep getting to know people, and they're like, well, haven't met, I, there probably is a hypocrite there. Or whatever. And then they, they're sitting there listening, you know, during the offering. Oh, see, they're trying to get your money. Ha, 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 got him, got him. And you're just like, relax. You don't have to give us any money. Relax. Relax. Be with us for a while. When we do that, we are imitating the first century church, and the first century church changed the world. And we're going to change the East Bay like the first century church changed the world. Are you with me? Are you with me? All right. You're like, if we clap, will you wrap it up? Yes. Let's pray. Father, I love these guys so much. This is the favorite thing about my job. I was thinking the other day, I've been doing this now for almost 40 years, and I wanna keep doing it. This is fun. Lord God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would talk to us this week about our hope and our holiness. I pray that in the next time we're shopping and we see the word organic or locally grown, we'll think about what we just learned and we'll say, Jesus. Produce locally grown organic fruit out of my life that my neighbors can freely consume. Jesus, we ask you to be the head of our church. Holy Spirit, we ask you to nourish us on the weekends and in our community groups so that we can nourish a hungry world. We build our hope on nothing less